Well, good morning. So, uh, as you know, we have been uh, in a semester where we're dealing with uh, bibliology and hermeneutics. Bibliology, that is, what is uh, God's Word? What is the Bible? What is Scripture? And then hermeneutics, how do we interpret it? And, uh, and so, uh, we've spent uh, the first 12, 13 weeks or so of this semester on the topic of bibliology, really kind of laying a foundation what is Scripture in terms of the attributes of Scripture, that it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's authoritative, it's sufficient, it's clear, it's necessary, all of these sorts of things. The reason that we do that is because you can't interpret it without knowing what it is. Uh, otherwise, your interpretation is going to be skewed. If you don't believe the Bible is authoritative, if you don't believe the Bible uh, is sufficient, it's going to uh, change, skew, obscure in some sense the way that you read it, the way that you interpret it. So we spent this uh, kind of massive amount of time kind of l- trying to lay a foundation of what Scripture is, and then we're building upon that foundation this uh, uh, sort of 12 weeks or so where we're going to be talking about hermeneutics. How do we interpret scriptures. And so one of the things that we've done as we've uh, been looking at hermeneutics is we have been dealing with some of the, uh, the uh, issues that we need to kind of clear away before we begin to do interpretation, some of the things that we need to be aware of. So we talked about presuppositions, how each of us come to the text with certain assumptions, certain presuppositions, uh, and by and large, we cannot get rid of those. Uh, What we can do, though, is we can recognize that we have them and correct uh, uh, them to some degree and then kind of counteract them uh, in in our uh, interpretive methods and so forth. So what we want to talk about today uh, are something called exegetical fallacies. So has anybody ever learned a language or studied another language or whatever it might be? You took Spanish in high school or whatever it, uh, it might be. As you know, whenever you're learning a language, there's kind of two components to it. Right? There is the vocabulary uh, of the language, and then there's the syntax of the language. Right? And so just because you know vocabulary doesn't mean that you can actually carry on uh, a conversation if you can't conjugate verbs and that kind uh, of stuff. And so by and large, at least for me, vocabulary was very easy uh, whenever I would learn Spanish or whatever it might be. I could memorize words, but it was much more difficult for me to actually try to learn uh, what are the nuances of how do I uh, conjugate this verb into a future tense or into second person or third person or whatever it might, uh, it, it might be. In a lot of ways, studying the Bible is kind of like that. It's kind of like learning a new language. There is this vocabulary element that tends to be more simple. You're just learning a word. You don't have to do anything with that word. You don't have to conjugate it. You don't have to figure out uh, uh, any of the, the nuances of it. You just memorize this is the word. The Spanish word for two is dos, and that's it. You just got to know that's all there is. And there are elements of the Bible that are like that. The basic storyline of Scripture is like that. It is uh, so simple that even a child can comprehend it. Uh, and, uh, and then on the other hand, there is this other element, kind of like the syntax or the grammar of a language, that's a bit more complex, that's going to take a bit more uh, time and effort on our part if we're really going to want to know the nuances. Uh, that's kind of what uh, the, the Bible has as well in regards to interpretation, that there's this basic element that even your uh, four-year-old kid can understand in terms of the, the basic components of the gospel. But then there is this, in addition to that milk, there is, even as Dan prayed, there is this meat uh, to Scripture that's going to take more work on our part. We have to chew a lot more if we're going to be able to digest it. And so one of the things that we're talking about today 
is this sort of uh, reality that we tend to, to have these ongoing uh, issues in our terp- interpretation that are called fallacies. And, uh, and so think about even uh, English speakers, how often you might be in the, the heat of a conversation, you might say something like, they is, uh, or you might use uh, there, T-H-E-I-R, when you really mean they are, the con- c- contraction there, T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E. We do this all the time, all right? Even those of us who are pretty good at spelling or whatever it might be, pretty good with grammar, uh, we tend to do this uh, just kind of absent-mindedly. In the same way, we do this with Scripture all the time. Uh, that there is this uh, moment where we can be absent-minded and we read something into the text that's not intended uh, to be there. And so we call these sort of mistakes fallacies, all right? So let me give you a definition of a fallacy. A fallacy is a deceptive, misleading, or false notion or belief. A deceptive, misleading, um, or false notion or belief. Uh, And then as it regards to um, uh, logic and philosophy and so forth, it's any of various types of erroneous reasoning that render arguments logically unsound. So basically you have two different categories of fallacies that we'll talk about. We'll talk this week uh, about exegetical fallacies, and we'll define that here in a moment. And then in a few weeks, Zach's actually going to come, and he's going to talk about logical fallacies, right? Uh, Logical fallacies, things that you might remember if you took an intro to philosophy course uh, in college or an intro to logic or something like that. So you might have heard uh, of an uh, ad hominem argument or a red herring or a slippery slope or uh, begging the question or some of these sorts of things. These are the kinds of things that Zach will talk about in a few weeks. These are logical fallacies. These are fallacies in the way that we're thinking. Uh, we're not making uh, logical sense. But what we want to talk about this week is not necessarily logical fallacies, but more exegetical fallacies. Uh, that is uh, errors in our approach to the text, errors in our interpretation Uh, of the text as we look at uh, the text itself. And so they're exegetical because they're related to exegesis. Um, What is exegesis? Anybody? What's the opposite of exegesis? Eisegesis, all right? Eisegesis is reading something into the text. Exegesis is drawing something out of the text, that we want to be exegetical. We want to be exegetes of the Scripture. We want to read out of the text Uh, This relates to what we talked about uh, either last week or the week before with authorial intent. We want to only get out of the text what was intended by the author of the text, both the human and the divine author. We don't want to read something else into the text. We don't want to impose upon the text what we think, what we believe, any of those kinds of things. That's eisegesis. That's putting something into the text. Uh, Our job is not to put something into the text. Our job is to draw out of the text. That's exegesis. So these are exegetical uh, fallacies, and I'll give you a definition. It's on your, uh, your note there if you picked up a handout. An exegetical fallacy is when the original language is misunderstood, misused, or misapplied to say or teach something that was not intended by the author. So when the original language is misunderstood, misused, or misapplied to say or teach something that was not intended uh, by the author. And so why is this important? Uh, a few reasons that this is so important for us. One, because this is so rampant, right? Uh, and so pastors even do this all the time. Theologians do this all the time. Uh, we as a church will do this from time to time. Uh, these things are going to be so rampant. The, some of the examples that I'll give, you've probably heard somebody preach an entire sermon 
based upon some of these fallacies that we're going to talk about. So these are so rampant, so it's really important that we have a framework to be able to identify them. Uh, kind of like it's, it's probably pretty important for you. Maybe your response if you see a snake is just kill it, right? All snakes are bad snakes, and so you kill them. But it probably would be helpful at some point in your life if you had some framework to be able to discern what's a venomous snake versus a non-venomous snake. And so in the same way, what we're trying to do is build a framework. I'm not interested in you being able to remember all of the specific technical names for these fallacies, but in general to have a framework for knowing, am I doing eisegesis or am I doing exegesis? Am I reading something into the text or am I drawing out of the text? So that's the first reason that this is going to be important for us is because this is so prevalent, this is so rampant uh, within the uh, evangelical church. Uh, and then secondly, because this, these things obscure the meaning of the text. These things are going to obscure the meaning of the text. They're going to put our own stuff in there, mix it along with the text, such that it's really hard then to see uh, what's the word of God versus what's the word of Jeff or the word of Wade or Steph or whatever it might be, all right? And so uh, there is this sense in which uh, whenever we are doing the work of exegesis, we only want to know what's the word of God But if we're inserting, if we're uh, imposing upon the text our own thoughts and feelings and so forth, it's going to obscure the text, and thus it's going to obscure the glory of God. And so one of the things that we're trying to do in uh, this theological equipping class, not only this semester, but in all the semesters that we do this, is try to stress the importance of theology. The theology is going to be critical for us as uh, believers. In fact, it's the most important thing about us is what we believe about God. What we think about when we think about God is the most important thing uh, about us. And, uh, and so uh, imagine, if you will, uh, just reading the news uh, over the past couple of years. Uh, I read a story, speaking of snakes, I read a story about a, uh, a really uh, well-known uh, prosperity gospel uh, pastor, charismatic guy who uh, really took uh, the idea of handling snakes seriously, and, uh, and so, which is based on a, a corruption of, uh, of the scripture. And, uh, and so as part of their worship service, they have these venomous snakes there. And, uh, and his belief was uh, based on, again, this corruption of uh, Mark uh, 16. His belief was that he could handle snakes, and if they bit him, he would not in any way uh, get sick or die or whatever. Well, what do you think happened? He got bit, and he died. Uh, this is the kind of thing that happens uh, with, uh, with bad theology. Not any time you misinterpret the text, you're going to die, but you might, right? And so the, the people who, uh, who refuse to have their kids get any sort of medical attention, uh, that's a, a, an issue of theology. Uh, the uh, people who perish uh, at Jonestown or the people who perish, the Branch Davidians or whatever it might be. Uh, and so these are some, some of the, 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 the extreme consequences of bad theology. But any bad theology is going to obscure for us our opportunity to see God in his glory as he's revealed himself in his word. And so uh, with that in mind, uh, let's begin to talk about some of these common exegetical fallacies. And we'll give uh, a handful of them in our time together. So let me give you a couple of caveats as we begin. Uh, first off, not all of these are real technical names. Again, I, I'm not concerned at all uh, that you know the specific name. For some of them, there's not like an actual name, so I just kind of made up uh, a name so that we could have some sort of category for them. So that's the first one. Uh, don't uh, try to look up these particular names by Google search or something. Uh, and then the second one, some of the verses that we'll talk about 
uh, as we kind of try to give some examples of these fallacies, some of the, some of the uh, verses might fit in multiple categories. So there's a lot of overlap uh, between these categories. But in general, uh, we'll, uh, we'll try to uh, give you specific examples that fall under each of these uh, different, uh, different ones. So the first few that we'll talk about are all word study uh, fallacies. Uh, all of these are related to, uh, d- to some degree, uh, something of etymology, that is the derivation of the word. Where do we get uh, the word? What's the root uh, meaning of the word or, or whatnot? Uh, and, uh, and so uh, one of the things that we want to just drive home with this first few is the idea that when we're talking about a word, the usage or the context of that word is really what we derive the meaning from, not the word itself. A word itself is a carrier of meaning, but it carries this wide range of meaning. So imagine if I just say the word bat to you, all right? Some of you in this room might have the image of a baseball bat. Some of you in this room might have the image of a winged mammal, right? The word itself is not going to help us unless we were to say something like, uh, there was a bat in my room last night and it bit me. All right, then that's going to help us to nail down which meaning we actually uh, are talking about. So in, in general, these first few that we're talking about, it's really helpful to remember that words themselves are not what give us the meaning. All right? They're going to help us to narrow down the meaning, but where we really get the meaning of a word is in its usage, in its context, in the grander scheme of how uh, we are to use it. So let's go with the, the, uh, the first one here, which is the incidental uh, fallacy. This is not a word study one. Uh, I put this out of order for some reason. But incidental fallacy, which is failing to account for differences in descriptive and prescriptive texts. What's a descriptive text? Yeah, a text that describes something. What's a prescriptive text? Yeah, it tells you what to do. It prescribes something, right? So descriptive, describes. Prescriptive, prescribes. You think of uh, something that's prescriptive, that is like a prescription, uh, like a doctor gives you a prescription. They tell you this is what you should do. You should take uh, this. Now, when the Bible uses uh, prescriptive language, it's not like a doctor. A doctor is going to give you a recommendation, but you very well might go home and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take that uh, antibiotic or whatever it might be. God's word is not like that. It is a command. It's an imperative. But what we tend to do uh, oftentimes is we tend to confuse these different categories of Scripture. Uh, so all descriptive texts, every text within the Scripture has an element of prescription to it, right? But it doesn't always have the exact same uh, type. Uh, it's not all prescriptive in the same way. So, for example, if I tell you to love your neighbor, that's a direct command of Scripture. So that is prescriptive upon us. But Israel slaughtering God's enemies does not mean that we slaughter ours. Does that make sense? There's a descriptive and a prescriptive. One is descriptive. God commands Israel to slaughter all their enemies. As we read that, that's just a description of what God commanded to his people for this particular time period. Love your enemies is a prescriptive text that is prescriptive for us and for uh, our uh, lives and so forth. This comes up all the time, especially within the Old Testament, but also within the historical books of the New Testament, Acts and so forth. And so you read the Old Testament and you read of accounts of rape, you read about uh, polygamy, you read about slavery, you read about these sorts of things. And oftentimes the author is not intending in any way to give a thumbs up about that. 
In fact, a lot of the time, uh, he won't give either a thumbs up or a thumbs down, but he is intending for us to see the consequences of that. You read polygamy in the Old Testament, and, uh, and, and the result inevitably in almost every single instance the author is going to put, there are consequences that come with this. There's strife, there's tension, there's murder, there's hatred, whatever it might be. Uh, but there is a difference between that which is descriptive and that which is prescriptive. So let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, from Acts chapter 1, uh, they, uh, the uh, apostles or the disciples decide they need to replace Judas. So Judas has now uh, committed suicide. They need to replace him. Uh, and so what's the process that they go about for replacing him? They cast lots, all right? Now, uh, who thinks that that is how the elders of the Parkway Church decided to go ahead and hire me a year ago? They just cast lots. Joe does. <laughs> yeah. They just rolled a dice. They had like six different guys' names on it, and whichever name it came up, okay, let's give the job to him. No, that's not the way that we make uh, decisions today. And so the fact that the, the disciples... Uh, chose who was going to replace Judas by casting lots does not necessarily mean that that is how we should replace church leaders uh, today. There's a descriptive element to the text that's not prescriptive uh, for us. Or uh, you look at uh, Deborah uh, in the Old Testament. Deborah was what in the Old Testament? She was a judge in the Old Testament. Now, that is a descriptive text, all right, that is describing something that is a fact. She was a judge. Does that mean that we should have female elders within our churches today? No, that's a prescriptive element. That, is, uh, that interpretation is certainly ruled out by the rest of the New Testament, which talks about the fact that there should not be uh, female uh, elders. And so, again, all passages, even descriptive passages, have an element of prescription to them. But we don't want to just simply take all the elements of a descriptive passage and make them prescriptive for our lives. Does that make sense? That's the first one, an incidental uh, fallacy. Uh, Drawing something that is simply incidental from this particular text and making it prescriptive for our life uh, today. And uh, so that's the first one. Second one, a root fallacy. The root fallacy, this is one of those word study fallacies. It's thinking a word is always the sum of its individual parts. Thinking a, word, uh, thinking a word is always the sum of its individual parts. Sometimes that's absolutely true. Uh, so think about compound words that you might know. I'll give you a couple, right? So starfish, right? In a sense, a starfish is like a star and like a fish, right? So there's an element in which you see these two words combined together, and we find out something about the nature of that uh, animal on the basis of those two words put uh, together. Or dark room, right? A dark room is a room that is dark. Small talk is talk, which is small. Something that is bittersweet, uh, that's a compound word. We, we know something about what the word bittersweet means on the basis of the two individual root words. They're bitter and sweet. Sleepwalk. Uh, is another one. So you have compound words in which this is true, that we know what the bigger word means by just breaking it up into its smaller parts. The same thing is true not only for compound words, but for what's called a portmanteau. A portmanteau or, or blended words. It's like spork. What does spork mean? Spoon and fork, right. Yeah, smog. What's smog? Smoke and fog. What about turducken? Turkey, duck, and chicken, right? I don't know how that works. I've never had turducken. I don't really want to. 
but that is a portmanteau. What about affluenza? That was in the news recently. What's that a, a portmanteau of? Affluent and influenza, right? And so this is another example where you learn something about the meaning of the word by just breaking it up into its constituent parts. But oftentimes, that is not the case, right? So a butterfly, right? What does butterfly have to do with butter? Not much, right? So if you were to look and to try to find some sort of connection between a butterfly and I can't believe it's not butter or margarine or whatever it might be, you're going to be lost, right? That's not the meaning is not in any way related to that butter uh, root. Uh, Or pineapple, right? Pineapple, which is neither a pine nor an apple. Um, And uh, I've told uh, before the story of whenever I was in uh, Sudan, a buddy of mine was teaching, and uh, he used an uh, an analogy of a catfish. And so the South Sudanese uh, interpreter did not know the English word for catfish, uh, but he knew the word for cat, and he knew the word for fish, and so he just combined those in uh, Arabic uh, into some sort of hybrid, uh, weird mutant animal. Uh, and so catfish doesn't really get the constituent parts or something. And, uh, and so oftentimes, even in English, we know that you can't just simply split a word into two different uh, English words and derive the meaning, pull the meaning uh, from that. Uh, likewise, in the Bible, sometimes we can do that. Uh, the, uh, the Greek word ekbalo uh, is formed from two words, a prefix uh, ek or ex, which means out of or from or away from, and then balo, which is to throw. It's a word that means to cast out, so cast away. Uh, and so that is a word that absolutely does. The, the word predestined, we talked about it last week. Zach's going to talk about it again uh, in the sermon this week. Uh, we, we can know a little bit about what that word means by just breaking it up into its constituent parts, destined and pre or beforehand. But oftentimes in the Bible, that is not the way that words are going to function. This is the root fallacy, the uh, etymological fallacy. Etymology is the study of the root or the derivation or the history of a word, the origin uh, of a word, if you will. And so let me give you an example of that that you might have heard Multiple times. I've heard this uh, my entire life, uh, and this is not actually uh, correct. Uh, So you might have heard before that the word sin uh, in Greek, uh, hamartia, is a combination of two words, one meaning not and one meaning mark. Not and mark. Not like uh, uh, the the author of the scripture, Mark, but uh, missing the mark. Is the idea there? So you might have heard a preacher who preaches an entire sermon about how sin is missing the mark on the basis of the fact that hamartia is this combination between not and uh, the mark. The problem with that is in the time period that uh, that uh, Paul and so forth is using this word hamartia. That is not in any way how the language is used. That the word in that particular context just means transgression. It means what we would call sin. This is the etymological fallacy, looking all the way to the root of how a word used to be uh, or or what it originally meant. And so let me give you an example of this. If I say goodbye to you today, does anybody know the etymology of goodbye? God be with you, right? Now, every time that everyone says goodbye, do they have in their mind, God be with you? No, absolutely not, right? You probably have a whole lot of really antagonistic, atheistic friends who would say goodbye, 
They are not trying to bless you and say, God be with you in that moment. They have, uh, although the word is derived from that, that's no longer the common usage. So there's probably a time in which hamartia was originally used to show something like not missing the mark, but by the time that Paul uses it, probably hundreds of years later, that no longer carries that connotation or nuance or whatever it might be. Another example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 uh, Paul writes that the apostles were servants of Christ. Uh, what's interesting there is in that context, he doesn't use diakonos, uh, where we get the English word deacon, uh, as a servant. He doesn't use the word doulos, uh, which is commonly uh, translated as bondservant or slave. He doesn't use those common words. He actually used a word that was less common, uh, hyperites, uh, hyperites, uh, which is formed from two words, uh, hupo, which means under, and then uh, eretes, which means rower. So maybe you've heard a sermon at one point in your life uh, about how we are to be under rowers. Uh, and the image there that they give is there's this ship, and in the hold of the ship you have all of the servants, and they're rowing. And how do they keep the beat? They keep the beat because their master is up on the deck and he's banging a drum, and they're rowing along to that beat. The problem with that is that by the time that Paul is using this particular uh, term, it no longer has any sort of maritime connotations whatsoever. So Paul's mind is not thinking of someone actually rowing. He's thinking the word means servant. He's just using another word that means uh, servant. And so again, this is another uh, example of what we call uh, a root fallacy. So bottom line, the meaning of a word cannot be reliably ascertained in all cases simply by breaking up a word into its constituent uh, parts. Sometimes the meaning of a word is the sum of its parts, but often not. So that's the root fallacy. Uh, The next one is uh, semantic anachronism. Semantic anachronism. Anybody know what an anachronism is? It's reading something out of its time context, right? It's just reading something out of its time context. Context. What semantic anachronism is, is reading a contemporary usage of a word or a new nuance of a word back to the original context. So it's kind of, in, in a sense, it's the re- reverse of what we just talked about with the root fallacy. Uh, it's doing the exact opposite. And so uh, an, an example of this, uh, maybe you're reading a Bible, and, and let's say it's a, a Bible uh, that was um, one of the translations from 200 years ago or so, 200 to 300 years ago or something like that. Uh, you just picked up a, uh, an original 1611 King James Version or something like that, and you're reading from it, and in that, you read that God is awful, right? Now, what does awful mean in the context of the 1600s? Full of awe, full of awe, full of wonder. Would we all agree that in that sense, God is awful? Yes. Now, what does awful mean today? Bad. It means bad, Right? Is God awful in that sense? No, so we can't impose a modern meaning of a word back on the original text. Sometimes um, uh, that happens, actually happens all the time uh, in biblical studies. You might have heard before that the the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And power there is the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. So uh, the, the power of God is like dynamite, unto salvation. The problem is, does Paul in any sense have the, word, have the concept of dynamite in his mind when he's writing? 
How do we know that? Dynamite wasn't even invented. It wasn't even on the radar, right? So what we're doing is we're looking and we're seeing dynamite has something in common with dunamis, with the power of God, but it goes backwards. It doesn't move this way. We don't look and see what's a common or or a uh, modern use of a term and read that back upon the text. Uh, Language uh, moves forward, not backwards. Uh, Another one that you might have heard uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 7, uh, the, uh, the Greek word there is hilaron, hilaron. You might have heard that God loves a hilarious giver, all right? Now, that is not what the original word meant. It doesn't mean hilarious. The English word hilarious is uh, derived from hilaron, but not vice versa. Again, the language is moving this way. There are connotations, there are nuances of the word hilarious uh, that Paul absolutely does not mean. And, uh, and so, again, this is semantic anachronism. It's taking a modern usage of a word, reading that back into the original context. Acts 2.14, another example of this, uh, which talks about the disciples as being uh, idiotes. That's where we get the word idiot, right? Now, is Luke or the people who are speaking at this period of time, are they trying to refer to the disciples as idiots? No. What the word originally meant is unlearned or common. It didn't have anything to do with intelligence. They weren't saying these men are dumb. These, they were saying these people are untrained. They're unlearned. Uh, they're common and so forth. So we can't read, again, the modern nuance, the modern usage back upon the original text. Uh, same thing with the word martyr, right? In the uh, context of the original Greek, when you see the word martyr, it just means witness. Well, how do we use the word martyr today? Someone who dies for your faith. Now, is there an overlap between the two concepts? Yes. A modern as we th- a martyr as we think about it today is someone who is witnessing. They are giving a testimony all the way unto death. But just because that is how we use it today, does that mean that's how Paul intended it or how Luke intended it? No. A, 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 the vast majority of people who are martyrs in the Bible were not killed for their testimony. They were simply bearing witness. That's all the word originally means. So again, uh, the, the important thing here is to recognize that there is a flow to the usage of language, and we don't move backwards in that flow. Uh, and so we don't think that the power of God is like dynamite. That's not accurate. That's not in any way in uh, Paul's uh, mind. So I'll remind you of the definition of a exegetical fallacy. It's when the original language is misunderstood, misused, or misapplied to say or teach something. Here's the, the, the part that is really critical. That was not intended by the author. Uh, Paul does not intend for us to draw a connection between dynamite and the power of God. Paul does not intend for us to make a connection between cheerfulness and hilariousness. Hilarious is making jokes. Uh, and so there's a different uh, context and connotation there. The next one, the next exegetical fallacy is equivocation. Equivocation. It's a fallacy that fails to recognize multiple meanings of words and reads one use onto another. So let me give you an example of this. So if I were to say, the Bible says that we are saved by grace. We're saved by grace. And, And my niece, whose birthday it was this past week, her middle name is Grace. So the Bible says that we're saved by my niece. Everybody's 
It's equivocation. I'm using the same word grace in different ways within the same context. Uh, Likewise, if I were to say, I have the right to say whatever I want. I have the right to say whatever I want. It is right for me to say whatever I want. Therefore, if I want to do the right thing, I need to, I need to say whatever I want. You see the, the fallacy there? You're using the same word right in multiple different uh, ways and different nuances and different, uh, with different meanings there in the context. Or to say, noisy children are a real headache. Two aspirin make a headache go away. So two aspirin will make noisy children go away, right? So we're, uh, that's equivocation. That's an example of this uh, uh, fallacy that fails to recognize there are multiple meanings to a word and and it reads one use onto another. Let me give you uh, a few biblical examples of this. If you're reading about the call of God, the call of God, uh, the Bible is going to, again, the, the, what's important is not just the meaning of the word, it's the meaning of the word within a context, within a particular usage. As Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, is using the word call throughout his letters, what he means by that is very different. Uh, it's something very different than what the synoptic authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are going to mean whenever they use the word call. When they use the word call, it's going to be something like an invitation. It's an invitation. God offers this. He calls everyone in this sense of giving an invitation. When Paul uses the word call, it's going to be uh, efficacious. It's going to be more like a drawing in. Uh, so so uh, almost like the synoptics, this call is this idea that just is going out from God's mouth. Uh, whereas in Paul's uses, it's more a pulling in uh, unto uh, God himself, or uh, the word uh, righteousness. When Paul uses the word righteousness, it means a forensic declaration. James means something different uh, in his uh, usage of it, uh, which is why, uh, because of this error of equivocation, that's why people have often thought that Paul and James contradict each other. Paul says, you're not justified by works. James says, you are justified by works. Is there a contradiction there? No, because they're using justified in different ways in their different contexts. Matthew is also going to use a different meaning for righteousness uh, and so forth. And so uh, equivocation is to read a word as if it only means one thing and uh, not recognize that it has different nuances in different uh, contexts. Uh, And so we see this uh, with the word flesh as well. At times you'll see like all flesh is like grass. And that the flesh is set against the spirit. And that we'll see a reference to flesh and bones. And then we'll see things like the word became flesh. Now, in John's usage, the, words became, the word became flesh. It's saying Jesus became flesh. Do we mean flesh there the same thing that Paul means whenever he writes about the flesh being something that's evil? No, Jesus doesn't become evil So again, that's equivocation. It's reading a word as if it only means one thing whenever it means different things in different uh, contexts. So if someone were to ask you, what does the word call mean in the Bible? Or what does the word righteousness or justification mean? Or what does the word flesh mean? In some sense, you'd have to say it depends. It depends on the context. In what context are you looking at? Let me look at the actual verse with you. The word itself only has a, it has a range of meaning, and I don't want to tell you this meaning when you're looking in this context. Does that make sense? Equivocation? 
Related to this uh, is the fallacy of ignoring context or genre. So you might have heard the story before. October 30th, 1938, uh, there was the uh, broadcast of the War of the Worlds program, and, uh, and so there were uh, reports uh, that uh, it seems like it, it has really been exaggerated over time, but there were reports that certain people did not know that that was a, sort of a radio program. They thought it was an actual announcement, so there was a, a bit of hysteria uh, as they thought we're genuinely being attacked by aliens or whatever it might be, right? Because they didn't know the context is that this is within a radio play, uh, a program, and, uh, and so uh, there is this importance to understanding the genre of Scripture we're in, the context of Scripture we're in. Otherwise, uh, we're going to uh, misinterpret uh, something. So if I use the word pitch, and I'm talking to Zach, he's a baseball aficionado, he's going to think of something that's really different than if I uh, am talking to Carl, who is a trained musician, right? He means something different by the word pitch. Uh, and it's also going to be different than if uh, maybe I, because I grew up playing soccer, I think of pitch as being the field upon which uh, you play, which is different than maybe Tim if he's a big camper and he thinks of pitching a tent or whatever it might be. And so the word is going to have different meanings depending upon uh, the context. Or if I asked you the question, do you like turnovers? All right? Do you like turnovers? It would depend... Your answer to that question would depend if you were sitting in uh, Cowboy Stadium, or whatever that's called these days, AT&T something, uh, or if you're sitting in like a, uh, a bakery in Paris, right? In one context, you like turnovers a lot more than in the other context. And even if you're in a Cowboy Stadium and someone asks, do you like turnovers, it depends. Is your team on offense or defense, right? And, uh, and so context is going to determine the, uh, the meaning of the word, the interpretation of the passage, and so forth. This comes up all the time within the Bible, especially within uh, the Proverbs. Proverbs ten nineteen says this, When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So look at that last phrase there. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Does that mean that if you meet someone who never speaks, that that person is always wise? Is that a universal truth, that if you never speak, that you are necessarily, by definition, a prudent, wise, righteous, good person? No. Why not? Because the context of the Proverbs, we recognize these are general truths. These are not promises. These are not universally applicable or whatever it might be. Proverbs 10.22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Does that mean if you really follow the Lord that you'll never experience any sorrow? No, again, these are general truths. Proverbs 26, 4 through 5, this is a, a big one. Verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. The next verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Those seem contradictory until you recognize there is a context, context in which it's appropriate to answer a fool. There's a context in which it's appropriate not to answer a fool. And what we need to do through wisdom is discern which context are we in. Uh, so when your brother-in-law makes a comment at a family reunion or whatever it might be, this might be the context where you bite your tongue. This might be the context where you speak. But both are true in different contexts uh, and so forth. Uh, Zach mentioned this 
last week or the week before, um, as an example, in apocalyptic literature, we see this all the time where it's important that we recognize genre, uh, the genre of Scripture. So whenever it says that Jesus is going to come back and a sword from his mouth is going to consume his enemies, we don't necessarily think that he's going to have a literal, physical, sharp, double-edged metal sword coming out of his mouth, right? There is a meaning that's attached to it, but it's not a literal meaning in that context uh, because of the genre. And so uh, that's uh, the fallacy of ignoring the context or genre of a passage. Next one is called uh, illegitimate totality transfer. I didn't make up that phrase. Uh, Illegitimate totality transfer is whenever we recognize that words have a range of meaning and that we assume a word carries all the range of meaning within one particular usage. So we recognize that words mean can mean from A to D, and we try to impose all of the range of meaning upon one particular usage and not recognize it just means one particular thing uh, when it's used. So you might have heard this, uh, agapao and phileo, two different Greek words uh, that mean love. And, uh, and so you might have heard a, uh, a pastor give a sermon at one point about how uh, there is this vast distinction between agape love, the love of God, and, uh, and phileo love, that is more brotherly love, and so forth. And the entire sermon is based upon this distinction. Uh, the problem with that is that is not universally true, uh, that there are times when the Bible itself is going to use agape or agapao, uh, the verb, verbal form, for something that is not at all like divine love. And so in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the word that's used of, um, uh, of Amnon's incestuous relationship with his sister, his half-sister Tamar. The word there is used, it's not phileo, uh, it is agape, that he has this agape feeling for her. So if we've now... Uh, kind of come to the conclusion, if we've presumed upon the text that agape always means divine love, then we have this uh, issue uh, where there is this divine love in the case of rape, and that's obviously not uh, the case. Or the Bible itself is going to use phileo of God's love. In John 5.20, it says, the father phileo loves the son. John 16.27, the father phileo loves uh, the disciples, and so forth. So, are there times, are there contexts in which agape and phileo are intended to be distinguished? Yes. But is that always the case? Is it always the case, whenever an author uses agape, that he wants to distinguish it from phileo? No. That's not always uh, the case. Um, there is this overlap. Uh, in, in addition to uh, the distinctives between each word, there is an overlap uh, between them. Uh, we see this with, uh, uh, there's a, a joke, my uh, previous church, uh, the pastor uh, preached a couple of sermons and he talked about the Hebrew word dode, dode, which is a, a word that in, in some contexts means sexual love. In other contexts, it means uncle, right? Now, in any of those cases, is the author meaning impose both of those meanings upon the word? Hopefully not, right? That's weird, Uncle and sexual love combined together is never what the author means. And so it means one or the other depending upon uh, the context. But again, that is uh, illegitimate totality transfer. Whenever you uh, 
you assume that all of the various meanings of the word have to be imposed upon this one text. All of the nuances in this particular usage uh, are intended by the author. Next one are grammatical fallacies, kind of making a mountain out of a molehill. Sometimes that's appropriate. For instance, uh, Paul is going to build an entire exegetical argument kind of dismantle an entire theological system on the basis of the use of one Hebrew term, which in the Old Testament is uh, uh, singular instead of plural. And that for him is going to uh, lead him into this really, really uh, crucial uh, distinctive in, uh, in Galatians. But oftentimes, that's not the case. Zach talked about this with double negatives, right? And so technically, if you use a double negative, what does it mean? You're actually making a positive, right? Two negatives make a positive, right? Now, is that the way that most of us use it whenever we're using it? No. If you go up to your, uh, your friend's house and uh, knock on the door and his mom uh, comes out and says, he's not going nowhere, do you say, well, he used two double negatives, so I guess he's coming with me? No, absolutely not. You understand in that context what they mean is he's, he's not going anywhere, Right? And so, likewise, we can't simply impose all of these grammatical rules upon the text as if, in all cases, uh, they are intending to, uh, to make uh, these huge theological arguments on the basis of this particular usage. So, let me give an example of this from uh, the cults and so forth. In, uh, in John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word's with God, and the Word was God. We've talked about this before, but how in the original Greek, it's anarthus. It doesn't have an article in front of it. Uh, and, uh, and so if it doesn't have an article, it means it's indefinite, right? The way that we say something is indefinite in English is we tend to say a man. The man is defecate, uh, definite. <laughs> definite. The man versus a man, which is indefinite. And so uh, what uh, certain cults and so forth will say is the word was uh, God means the word was a God. He's not God, he's a God. They've uh, imposed this uh, grammatical rule upon the text that's not in any way what John's intending. We've talked about this before, but what John means there is he can't say the word was the God because he's just used the word God in that context to refer to whom? The Father, and is the Son the Father? No. The Son is God, but he's not the Father. And so John knows if I use the article there, then I'm going to mislead my audience into thinking I'm saying that the Son is the Father, and that's not the case. And so, uh, again, there is a grammatical nuance there. The fact that he doesn't use an article is significant, but it's not the significance that the cults might read into it. And so uh, one of the fallacies that we can make is this grammatical fallacy where we kind of abuse past tense, future tense, whatever it, uh, it might be. Uh, next one, failure to recognize distinctions. Failure to recognize distinctions. Because X and Y are alike in certain ways, they're alike in all ways. It's kind of the idea there. Uh, this, is, uh, this comes up all the time in uh, race relations. Uh, if you uh, go up to someone uh, who is of another ethnicity uh, and you deny their ethnicity, uh, you say, uh, you know, I don't see you as a black person, or I don't see you as a, a Hispanic, or whatever it might be, uh, typically, uh, are they grateful for that? Probably not. They're actually offended by that, right? Uh, because what you've done is you've just, uh, not only have you blurred out some distinctives, you've blurred out all distinctives. And, uh, and so, failure to recognize distinctions, this comes up in, uh, in the Bible all the time. 
the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. This comes up as you talk about paedo-baptism and, uh, and so forth. That uh, you look in the, the scriptures and there is a relationship that exists between circumcision and baptism. Uh, they're really similar in that they're both signs of covenants, but they're also very different. For instance, only males were circumcised in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, all God's people receive uh, his covenantal sign. We baptize uh, males and females. But the biggest distinction And what Jeremiah even prophesies as being the critical difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the fact that in the New Covenant, all the covenant members are believers. All of them are regenerate. So look there in your sheet, Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of uh, Judah, not like the covenant, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So part of the New Covenant distinction where he says they're not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. That means there is a distinction to be made between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And how does Jeremiah define the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? He says, this is the difference. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord. Why? because they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That was not the case with the Old Covenant. With the Old Covenant, you could be a member of Israel, but not be a believer. In the New Covenant, you cannot be a member of God's universal church without being a believer. You can be a member of Parkway Church uh, and not be a believer. You have to profess to be a believer, but you could fool us. You could fool yourself, uh, potentially even. We can't fool God. So in Israel, there is this uh, innate sense in which you can be uh, a a member of Israel on the basis of your biological descent and yet not be a genuine believer. You cannot be a member of the universal church of God and not be uh, a believer. That is the distinction between the two covenants. Or another example of this is in Galatians, it says there's neither male nor female. Galatians uh, 3.28, I think it is. There's neither male uh, nor female. So a failure to recognize distinctions would be to say, okay, in no sense, this is what our culture is doing today, uh, in completely blurring the lines between the genders uh, and saying, in no sense is there a difference between male and female, uh, and use that to sort of negate what the Bible would say elsewhere uh, about gender roles in the home and in the family and embracing the good differences that God has wired into the genders uh, and so forth. That would be an example of that. Uh, The next few we'll kind of run through much more quickly, and then we'll get to a little exercise we can do together. Uh, Number nine, the fallacy of prejudicial prejudicial or biased reading. The fallacy of prejudicial or biased reading. This is what happens when a prejudice or a bias is read back upon a text. Uh, So, for instance, if you grew up in a Roman Catholic context, you have a particular conception of what communion is, right? It's this uh, means of grace for you. Uh, And so what often happens, though, you come out of that 
and you swing the pendulum. You overcorrect as a response to that, and you make communion just this symbol. That's all it is. It's just a symbol. It's just a sign where biblically it would say, no, it's a little bit more than that, that God does meet with his people in the taking of communion. He's not physically present. Jesus is not physically present. The the bread and the wine doesn't become his body and blood, but we don't want to swing the pendulum all the way over here and just make it just a symbol. Something happens as we take uh, the meal together, that we're encouraged, that we're edified, that we're united as a body together and so forth. Uh, Or maybe if you grew up in a context where uh, authority uh, was something that was very abusive, and so you swing the pendulum to view all authority with suspicion, Uh, and so you don't want to submit to a church, you don't want to be a part of a church, Uh, you know, you just kind of live off uh, your land, you won't submit to the government, whatever it might be, you have this view of authority that's been been affected by bias, it's been affected by prejudice. Uh, throughout the past. And so whenever you read the scriptures uh, and so forth, you're going to uh, overcorrect in your interpretation. Uh, the next one, a selective reading fallacy. Selective reading fallacy. Um, and, uh, and so that's kind of when, if I were to give you 10 reasons to support something, and you were to look and you were to say, man, the last two were really weak, and you dismiss the last two and you don't deal at all with the other eight. Uh, that's kind of what happens uh, there. And so you read the Old Testament, uh, you start in Genesis, you read all the way uh, through Malachi, uh, and you get to the end and you assume, man, I need to live under God's law. And so you start, you know, you throw out all your bacon, uh, you throw out all your clothes because they're made of mixed cloth and so forth, and, uh, uh, and that's how you begin to live. That's selective reading. You've only read part of the text. You've not read the New Covenant, you've not read the New Testament, and what that's going to say in regards to the Old uh, Covenant or this also comes up with uh, uh, how uh, we often read things about God's sovereignty, uh, as we talked about last week. You read passages uh, that talk about uh, the responsibility that we have uh, before God uh, to, uh, to respond positively to him, uh, and so we assume he can't be sovereign then. Or you read God's uh, passages on God's sovereignty and how he does, he works all things according to the counsel of his will and so forth, and we say, okay, as a result of that, then we must be puppets, we must be robots, whatever it might be. We're not reading those texts uh, in conjunction with each other. That's a selective uh, reading uh, fallacy. Uh, The next one, a maverick fallacy, um, which is just kind of the fallacy that you don't need community or commentaries or anything else doesn't matter if every pastor uh, that you've ever told this particular interpretation of the text to disagrees with you, or if your friends think you're crazy or whatever it might be. So one time I had a guy come up to me and had a conversation, and I instantly knew something's off with this guy. Uh, And it came out later uh, that he was one of the two witnesses in Revelation, which is really cool. I got his autograph and everything. Uh, That was his interpretation because uh, he was crazy. This is the maverick fallacy, all right? The idea that uh, it doesn't matter what other people say about the text. It doesn't matter what Christians have always believed about this text. You're sitting there uh, with your study Bible and a journal, and, uh, and there you, uh, you know, at your kitchen table, you upend 2,000 years of Christian scholarship, whatever it might be, which is not to say that that can't happen. Uh, it, it's just to say that that's not going to happen, Right? And, uh, and so that's not the way that God tends to speak to his people. Uh, and, uh, and so 
uh, if you're the first person to come up with any sort of interpretation of Scripture or theology or whatever it might be, uh, your general rule should be to kind of doubt yourself. The second one's kind of the reverse of that, right? So you hear all of these things that we talked about. Uh, you hear, man, I've, I've uh, done this fallacy and this fallacy and this fallacy, and I've heard a pastor say this and a pastor say this, and you kind of walk away, and you, uh, I call it the incompetent or the discouraged reader fallacy. Uh, you so doubt your own ability that you just give up and you leave the work to others. And so this would be kind of like if, if you, know, you, you begin to wrestle with a theological topic you wrestle with the text. You see there are some passages in, in the Bible that talk about how we need to respond to Christ. We need to believe. There's passages that say that we can't believe unless God enables us to do so. And then so you feel this tension and so you run from the tension. And, and you just kind of punt and you appeal and you say, well, Isaiah 55 says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my uh, ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and your thoughts than uh, my thoughts. And so uh, you, you kind of get this tension in the text, and you just say, I guess I, I just can't understand. This is one of those things I just can't understand. But in the, the Isaiah passage, even right after that, it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall be my word that goes out from my mouth, that shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, God's word has an intended purpose behind it, and that purpose is not that we just hear it and give up and think, I can't resolve this. Now, maybe it's going to take effort. It's going to take work on your part to be able to resolve it, but there is uh, an opportunity that we have by God's grace. He says in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything, there's this opportunity that we have to interact. Even as there's, we're surrounded by all these opportunities for fallacies, uh, we have an opportunity and a responsibility to do the hard work of learning the language of Scripture, not just the vocabulary, uh, but the difficulties of the grammar and syntax of uh, language. So, if everything that we talked about has in any sense discouraged you, there's all these sort of exegetical snares that are around you. I want to give you uh, just a few encouraging words uh, to conclude, and then we'll, uh, we're not going to do Q&A today. We'll do a little bit of a, a participatory exercise for a couple of minutes. Uh, first off, uh, so if, if you are discouraged by what we've talked about, because there's all these opportunities for us to fall into a snare on the left hand and the right hand, um, uh, the first one is just, honestly, the overwhelming majority of these fallacies are really self-evident in most of life. We just need to apply some of the rules that we live by in the rest of life uh, to the situation of reading Scripture, right? We don't read Scripture the same way that we read the newspaper or that we read a blog or that we read Twitter or whatever it might be. For instance, Zach's used this analogy all the time, uh, but Casey is not going to call 911 if I'm writing her a letter and I say my heart hurts, right? Because the context there, she doesn't have to think about the context she just knows the context is I'm saying that I love her. That's different than if I'm having a conversation with a doctor. And so these are evident in the vast majority of places in our life. They're really easy uh, to spot and identify and so forth. If we would just apply that same uh, uh, grid to our reading of Scripture. The second one, the big one, I think, is don't assume. Don't assume. Don't assume a word always means the same thing. Don't assume that the author... Uh, means something 
you'll notice that's a consistent element in all of these fallacies is it begins with someone making an assumption. I assume this is what the word means in all cases. I assume this is what the word means because it's composed of these different uh, nuances or whatever it might be. Uh, this is kind of like uh, the, the human tendency to kind of simplify and reduce things down to really simple rules. Who remembers the I before E rule? Right? I before E, except when? Or? Yeah, there you go. Now, who knows that there are hundreds of exceptions to that rule? There are. There are hundreds of exceptions to that rule. So can that rule be helpful? Yes. But is that rule always going to be helpful? No. Like, if you bet your entire life uh, on that rule, you're going to find there are a whole lot of places uh, where you're in trouble. The word sees, the word theism, like atheism, weird, feisty, foreign. There are tons of examples of places where that rule is not correct. In the same way, we might have certain rules that we impose upon the text that by and large can be really helpful, but there's exceptions. And in those exceptions are the opportunities for us to go uh, astray. So that means we need to learn proper methods and tools. That's what this uh, semester is about. And then also learn improper methods and tools in order to kind of uh, spot them in order to avoid them. If you've seen The Princess Bride, you know that he goes to the fire swamp. Uh, and he says there, there are three main dangers of the fire swamp. Anybody remember what those are? Lightning, sand, R-O-U-S's, burdens of unusual size, and, uh, and then the, the fire uh, stuff, whatever that stuff is, lightning, fire, something, I don't know. Uh, and, uh, and so anyway, his point is, now that we have seen what these are like, we can avoid them, Right? So in the same way, now that we've just kind of shined the light, shown the light uh, upon some of these uh, fallacies, we should be able to more easily spot them and identify them. And then lastly, just as an encouragement, our faith is always greater than our theology. That's a, a phrase that uh, one of Zach's professor actually used for him. You're always going to make mistakes in reading the scriptures. Uh, you're intended to be lifelong learners, which means that for the rest of your life, you're going to be learning. For the rest of your life, you're going to be growing in your interpretation of Scripture, in your ability to spot these errors, in your, in your ability uh, to be able to uh, properly interpret Scripture and so forth. So I want to do a, a brief exercise with you. And, uh, and so if you need uh, to go because you're helping out with the service or anything like that, you're welcome to do so. But uh, otherwise, if you get around one or two other people, so get in groups of uh, somewhere between two and four people and... Uh, and I put on your sheet five different verses, five different verses, uh, and I want you guys to look at those verses, and I want you to answer two questions. One, what is a common but improper interpretation of this? And then two, why is the interpretation correct? What is the fallacy, if you will? Don't feel like you have to fit it within one of these categories. Um, you can just, uh, you know, you make up your own category, whatever it might be, but what is a common but improper interpretation, and why is that interpretation incorrect? What is the fallacy? What is the, 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 the misunderstanding uh, owing to? So take a few moments and, uh, and do that with those uh, five verses. All right, for the sake of time, let's, uh, let's just look at uh, Matthew 7.1, all right? Matthew 7, 1, 
Judge not that you be not judged. So if you were going to uh, try to come up with uh, what is the uh, common but improper interpretation, what would you say? There you go. Never judge anything, anyone, for anything, at any time, anywhere, uh, and so forth. All right? So, uh, that is a very common. Who's heard that before? Who's ever actually had someone tell them that in response to giving any sort of criticism or whatever? All right? Now, uh, what are some reasons that that is improper, that's incorrect, that's a misunderstanding and misapplication of the passage? There you go. So there's another text that would contradict that. So I don't know what fallacy that would necessarily fall under, but something. All right. What else? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're reading a modern view of what judgment is uh, in terms of all of our connotations of intolerance and all that kind of stuff upon the original audience, which very well might not have been what Matthew meant or what Jesus meant. Right, what else? Out of context. What's the context? Uh, no, this is uh, Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, yeah. So, Sermon on the Mount. So, you'd have to, if you really wanted to know what does this passage mean, you'd have to read not only Matthew 7 1, you have to read Matthew 5 through 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And then, not only that, you have to read all of Matthew in order to get the greater context of Matthew's gospel. Not only that, you have to read the entire New Testament. Not only that, you have to read the entire Bible, all right? You can't ever dissect it or bifurcate it from its uh, greater context and so forth. So all of these different things you would take into account, and you see how these uh, different skewed interpretations uh, can come up. That would exist for all of the rest of those. These are five of the, uh, I was looking at the top ten most misunderstood and misinterpreted passages in the Bible, and uh, these are five of them. And so uh, all of these you could do, and you could begin to find how uh, the way that we commonly think of it or how you might even have heard some of these uh, taught or uh, uh, applied in various situations. You know, who, uh, who's ever heard of the weightlifter who thought, man, I can bench press 500 pounds because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what that passage means. You're going to break your chest, right? And, uh, and so... Uh, my hope today is certainly not to discourage us as we look at and see all of the different pitfalls on either side of us, but it's simply to give us a framework for being able to identify some of the more common opportunities for us as we're beginning to look at hermeneutics, as we're beginning to kind of set down a method for us to be able to interpret Scripture, to see some of the things that we're going to want to uh, avoid. If you will, I'm trying to, to clear out a little bit so we have a better foundation that we can begin to uh, build on. So with that in mind, we need to get over to the uh, service for uh, worship. So uh, Wade, do you mind praying for us?